0: be in today. As you're flipping there, just from, I don't know if this really has nothing to do with a sermon, but just facts that are interesting, because I like the trivia fact stuff. New Year's. Happy New Year, by the way. Jeez, I should just probably say that. Happy New Year. Um, New Year's resolutions. That's the theme, the topic of the day of the week, right? That's what we're going to be hearing about on from conversations, and flip on TV, you'll probably hear about it, and et cetera, and so forth. Resolutions are actually, New Year's resolutions are 4,000 years old, beginning first with the Babylonians. Uh, It was very pagan in nature, though. They they wanted to make resolutions to appease the gods in order to gain their favor. And if they didn't do it, then the gods would be against them. And the Romans also did it. Christians picked up the idea of New Year's resolutions. John Wesley did, and he started having the New Year's uh, watch night services. If you ever see New Year's services still take place today, it's where it was kind of born from Wesley and really it was kind of given as like an alternative for those maybe coming fresh out of the party scene to have somewhere to go on new year's night that is not going out to party but rather going out to uh, have a service to worship and meditate and to get ready for the new year Um, so in that topic uh, right now many of us are probably doing that Uh, we're probably thinking about goals setting goals the idea of resolutions is to actually bring improvement to your life. Like, we don't make resolutions that says, you know what, I want to eat a lot more next year, and I want to gain 20 pounds, and I want to actually throw away my gym membership. Like, we don't do that. Resolutions are for the improvement of our life. You want to think about the do's and don'ts lists, right? We shouldn't do this anymore. Maybe we need to gain this habit and do this more. And so I, I want to tell you on this January 1st, this morning, that... The goal of resolution is to have a, quote-unquote, better life, right? Um, The Bible, okay, actually tells you how to have the best life possible. You may have just cringed because I was in the Barnes & Noble recently and looking at the Christian book section and, man, there's just so much garbage in there about how to, you know, shape your destiny and all this stuff. And so maybe what I just said made you cringe. You're like, oh, no, he sounds like... People on TV sometimes sound like. But the Bible really does tell us how to have the best possible life. And if you're, if, if, if you're looking at 2017, you're saying, I want to, this year to be the year of years. Like the, the year that's just the best year that I've ever had. Well, the Bible tells you how. All right? There's not secrets involved here. Like there's, there's no 10 steps to the best 2017 to be written from this. In fact, the message is as old as... 2,000 years, right? If you come to our church at any point in time, you know that I'm kind of playing a little trickery, a little, you know, line and pull thing here, like, the best life possible is in Christ, okay? So we're going to look at the psalm, Psalm 16, and it's going to describe for us what the ideal life is. When I say the ideal life, I'm saying the, the life that God, when he originally created us, the life that he wanted us to have from day one. Like if there was no sin, no curse from death, and he was physically with us, what would life look like? How would we feel? How would our day-to-day, how would our emotional state and and the joy in our hearts, how would that look day-to-day if we had the, uh, you know, capital H, the true human life, the ideal life, the the life that God always designed? Because that's kind of the goal when we want to have the best life or make goals for ourselves to have a better life. We're still looking for kind of the ideal life. Well, the Bible spells it out for us. I'm stating now that it's, we're going to see how the ideal life is in Christ and how he lived the ideal life. We're going to look at what that means for us to have it in Christ. But first, we're going to look at Psalm 16 and walk through this together. Now, the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. This has really transformed my life. I know I'm Alex and I, my wife, we talk about it continually. The Psalms um, are this vast treasure... You know, I'm still young, but I, I, you know, I've been a Christian my whole life, and so I, I, almost for the first time, you know, it's it's so great when you learn something for the first time, and you're like, and you feel like there's a whole, like, world of information just, like, at your fingertips that you don't know. You ever get excited about that? It's like, I never knew this. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but the Psalms, I feel like are are being unlocked for me for the first time. Because this massive book in the middle of the Bible, like 150 chapters, okay? They are. They cover, essentially, what Tim Keller says, and I think it's true. Essentially, any emotion you may feel in your life is mentioned and covered in the Psalms, and they're written, um, like kind of like journal entries, and kind of a threefold way that you can read them. That that the, David composed many of them, but the Psalms are really written, um, as means of uh, whoever wrote the Psalm is they're expressing something kind of to the Lord, right? They're also expressing uh, kind of direction and instruction to their audience but there's also an element that when we read the psalms it's kind of like to be our words right as if you're praying these back to god and so the idea of read the psalms is to let the psalms be your words let it shape your prayer life when you approach this and i believe once you realize the psalms are that way Geez, like every day I find myself just reading two or three and just praying these back to God because there's just, the, it covers any emotion you may be feeling. If you do it all throughout the year, you'll be, have prayed and walked through any emotion you may be feeling throughout that whole year. So if you have not done that, please do that. There's lots of books by Donald Whitney and, uh, Donald Whitney and et cetera, uh, from others about how to pray through the Psalms and I really encourage you to do that. So, Jesus did it on the cross. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. He was actually praying that back to the Father as he was on the cross. So, Jesus even did this. So, please do that. I want to walk through this with you together um, and let these words, if they were our words, um, how will we look at Psalm 16? So, um, let me pray for our time. Jesus, your word is just that it's a vast treasure house of just um, your revelation to us, Lord. Um, thank you for your son, Jesus, who upon his arrival or in his life and his death and his resurrection has given color and, and meaning and fulfillment to all the things that you told your people, Lord. So thank you for him. I, I pray that um, uh, we would really see the, the, the meaning of the psalm it as we're thinking through our new year. What would it mean to have the life that is mentioned in this psalm in 2017? So be with us now, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so I want to start verse 1 in Psalm 16. It says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. This is a psalm of David. And as he starts, it starts off with a cry Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. If you're coming to God and you're saying, Preserve me, then there's a struggle. There's something going on in his heart that says, okay, I'm coming to you and I'm going to say some stuff, but it's kind of born out of a struggle. And I think, you know, I I pray that it wasn't always the case with David because we see him coming to God when things weren't hard. He was coming to God when things were actually well, but we can relate. Once life is hard, we often find ourselves on our knees before the Father saying, We need help. I need help, God. Um, Preserve me right now, because I'm feeling pretty weak. The the psalm is not clear what David was feeling, what he was coming from, but we know that he needed preservation from God. I I think there's hints we'll see in a minute. It says, "Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge." Guys, and we see how David's understanding of God was the foundation of his coming to God in this next verse. How and this is important for you guys to understand we'll be walking through some some uh pretty big theological things this morning how you understand god to be will be the foundation of your coming to him so if your understanding of god is not based off of what this is then um you're not going to be coming to god with with uh with prayers that he uh, he would bless or that even he would hear uh there's verses in the bible says he doesn't hear some prayers and you're like oh i didn't know that well it's in scripture so we we need our prayers to be fixed on this and your understanding of the god you're coming to to pray to be fixed on this all right and this, this is what david says in verse two i say to the lord you are my lord i have no good apart from you in verse 2, our English translations, if you look, you know, you see a capital L-O-R-D. That's the personal name that God gave to himself, to Moses, Yahweh. It means I am who I am. It means I am, you know, millennia ago. I am a millennia tomorrow. I, I have always been. There was no past, present, or or tenses to god he, he he can say for all of time i am and that's what that name means and david says i say to yahweh you are my adonai you are my lord you're the one who rules my life he says i have no good apart from you that statement could be read quickly without really thinking through what david is saying i have no good apart from you i want to take a minute to try to define what the Bible defines as good. The Hebrew word here is tobe, uh, if you ever pronounce that. And it covers really anything in Scripture that you would say is good. I'm talking about like just your, your, your day-to-day life, the things you're like, oh, this is good. Listen to the various uses that this word is, uh, the different versions of it at least, is used throughout the Bible and the Old Testament to refer to good things. Uh, this word is used in Genesis chapter 2 about the gold found around the garden of Eden, it was pleasant, it was agreeable, right, this is good, the gold is good, Um, things to the sight, in Genesis chapter 6, it talks about that really bizarre passage of angels and humans and somehow whatever happened there, you can read it for yourself and don't Google it because you'll find some really weird stuff, but it said the daughters of men were very fair, right, they they were very beautiful in appearance, Uh, if if you look at your wife and say, well, she's beautiful." That word good, I didn't mention this a minute ago, Toby, actually, the short definition is beautiful. So so we're we're seeing that things to the sight we can call good, to the taste. The food in Eden, the food in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2, was described as beautiful, described as good. The things to the smell of time, we just entered a joyous holiday. There are such things as good Times, as used in First Samuel 25, referring to a festival, a, a festival day, like a festival that was happening. This is a good day. There's good places. In the book of Esther, talking about uh, uh, rooms in the palaces that were good rooms. Uh, maybe you have a favorite room that you have to sit in and read a book in. That's a good room, right? Of persons, First Samuel 29, of words or messages you may hear in Proverbs 15. The idea is that anything, this is huge. Like this is such a huge thing. So up? if there's anything in life she would say is good, right? The idea David's presenting is that that is from God himself. Right? Like last Tuesday, for example. I think it was Tuesday. I took a few days off this week and I went outside and it was like May 1st. It was amazing. It was like a spring day. And we were like, we're getting our kids out of the house because they're going crazy. So we took them to a park and we were walking around in our short sleeves and I found my heart going before God to say, thank you for this good day. It's a warm day in December. Thank you. Right? That was from God. David is saying anything good to be enjoyed in this life is from God. And therefore, now he's setting up some filters for us if, if, if we are catch what he's saying. He's really saying that if your joy from these good things in life isn't yet fulfilled until first you realize that its source is is God, right? He sets up a filter here to say anything good in this life, this is God right here. So if this good thing is over here and I'm enjoying something right here, I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, God is right here and I'm enjoying something back here, then I'm looking through my God lenses, per se, to see that this good thing is found and its source is from God. And it's a blessing from God. And anything good you may say you have in this life, David says, is from the hand of God alone. Now, if that's the case, what does that mean about the very nature of God? That he is a good God. If God loves to give his children good things, that means that his very nature, he is a good God and loving God, who loves to see his children enjoy good things, right? But we find ourselves, this is when sin can happen, when we enjoy things, and we forget about God, and we, be, we can make good things become ends in themselves, right? We're going to see what David says in, in just a minute about that, but again, I want to state this, your joy in life isn't yet full until first you realize that, the goodness of what you're enjoying is fulfilled in God, right? So therefore, you are to enjoy God first before you are to enjoy anything else. And it makes other things to enjoy in this life even better when you realize, wow, the great good God of all things has provided this good thing for me. Thank you, God. I can really enjoy this thing now. A good book, a music, whatever it is, is from the good God who loves to give you good things. And Calvin actually flipped this around and says that if anything good is from God alone, then we got to remember we can't bring anything good to God. So even when you look in your own life, right, in your own uh, achievements or or, or things, uh, good deeds that you may have done, right, uh, Calvin is, is so far to say that even those good things if they're only found in God, means that those things are even sourced in God. So you can't even attribute that to yourself, right? Especially if you're a Christian. We'll look at that in a minute. And so um, David goes on to verse 3 and he says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So there's, there's two things here. I think David kind of, he, he sets up his audience here. Right, I think there's two things he, he states here. In stating that for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. If, if um, we know that to enjoy God, right, David is also indirectly now saying if his delight is in God's people, then there's, a, there's an aspect of enjoying God will require you be in the midst of his people to enjoy God. We see also in the New Testament to serve God, right? Jesus says, if, if you give a, a cup of cold water to someone in my name, you have done it for me, right? To really to serve God becomes uh, through the avenue of serving his people. And so David is kind of stating that, but I think he's really stating, he's, he's saying um, the Hebrew can kind of go both ways. And I, I don't actually know, in, know translations inspired. I disagree with the ESV translation in this verse uh, when it says, as for the saints, I think the word should be really uh, to the saints, in the land. He's, he's speaking something to them right now. He kind of transitions. He says, hey, guys, uh, the people of God, I want you to listen right now. I enjoy you guys and I have a dear love for you. I need you to listen to something right now. And he goes in verse four, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. He gives a warning, right? So he says, if, if, if you want sorrow, go chase after other gods. Because they will continually multiply. So he does so the comparing, some contrasting, right? There's all the good we have in life is found in God. If you end up, and I, you know, look at it this way. If you end up making the good things in this life, right? Your, your good goals, perhaps, your good habits, or the, the good things in this life that we, we, we desire and we want, and the end in themselves, we're essentially becoming, um, trying to make those things into God's. And David says, your sorrows will indeed multiply, if you chase after them. We see David uh, having knowledge of his own heart, knowing the sensitivity that we all have towards these things, right? And I think that when David at the beginning of the psalm says, preserve me, O God, I'm thinking this is probably a part of the struggle that he's recognizing. Um, Preservation from the chasing of other gods, right? He he says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He's basically just referring to Um, In his day, uh, uh, idol, um, pagan worship was was rampant. Um, There's a lot of syncretism in Israel, right, when people would, would take on other worship systems and take on the worship of Yahweh and try to figure out how to combine the two. And David says, if you do this, you will chase after sorrows, and I will not even touch those worship systems, nor will I even speak the names of these false gods on my lips when i even speak of them and paul kind of says something similar about the deeds of the wicked he said i will not even say the deeds in secret i don't even want them on my lips well why is he so sensitive towards it because he knows that he himself could be the very person trying to enjoy those things and trying to multiply his sorrows through the chasing of false gods he knows that so he says i I don't even want to talk about it if i talk about it there's a chance that my heart will start craving it but i know that all the goodness is found in God alone, and so I want God to be my only good. I don't want to chase after these guys. And he's telling Israel, I'm warning you guys. If you do this, you're going to have multiplied sorrows. As he continues, he goes back to his understanding of God. And guys, listen to these words. Are, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and I, just, I, I love what, how David describes his Lord. He says in verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. So listen to this. Think of, um, I, I think I used this allusion some part, a different sermon I preached once too, but think of your, your, your favorite meal in the world, whatever that would be, all right? We just got finished um, Christmas dinner, right? And my in-laws cook prime rib every year. So it's like the best prime rib. So think of like that kind of meal, right? That you had, you're like, this is amazing. Like, and imagine every day having access to that meal, whatever your favorite drink would be too. So you're looking at your, your favorite meal, your favorite drink, imagine having access to that every single day, as much as you want, right, to, to enjoy, and this is what, and listen to this word, Lord is his chosen portion and his chosen cup. So not only imagine your meal to be your favorite meal, but imagine having a chef that has personalized your meal to exactly your senses of enjoyment right that the, the, the chef knows exactly how he likes your meat and the seasonings you like and how red and juicy you like and what temperature you do and it's just given to you um, with perfection according to your desires david says when i enjoy god i feel like not only is this The best meal and the best drinks, but that it's selected personally for me. I can feel that. My joy is so complete in the Lord that I feel like when I enjoy Him, it's almost like it's designed to meet my special desires. It feels personalized for me. It feels chosen and selected and picked out, hand-picked for me. This is how he describes God. It's like having your favorite meal and your favorite drink that is designed for you to have as much as you want and to enjoy it. He says, but God is so much better than that because I get to enjoy God as much as I want. It's like having that in an endless capacity. He is my chosen portion. He is my chosen cup. And he says in verse 6, the lions have fallen, the, the measuring ropes, if you want to be um, uh, literal, the lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He adds a second analogy, right? Think of inheriting whatever your favorite geographical location would be, right? Think of, you're given 30 acres in Hawaii of rolling green hills in the ocean, a beautiful house, and you're given this as an inheritance, and you say, like, wow, this is just beautiful, and I, I enjoy it. David looks at his Lord and says, the Lord is my inheritance. It's like that the measuring ropes of of an inheritance has has fallen in this perfect location. That's how I feel about God. In other words, I mean, think of David living in the promised land, right? He's referring to God as something even better than the land that, that Israel received. It's like God is even better than that. He's like the most perfect inheritance that you could receive. And I get to inherit him and to enjoy him. It's like he's like the perfect inheritance for me, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. There's that word again, a beautiful inheritance. This is what John Calvin said about these verses. Listen to this. This is huge. He says, David, by calling God the portion of his lot and his inheritance and his cup, he protests in a positive way that he is so fully satisfied with him alone as neither to covet anything besides him. Nor to be excited by any depraved desires. Let us therefore learn when God offers Himself to us to embrace Him with the whole heart, and to seek in Him only all the ingredients in the fullness of our happiness. Did you hear what he said? Let me read that last part again. Let us therefore learn when God offers Himself to us to embrace Him with the whole heart and to seek Him only in Him only all the ingredients and the fullness of our happiness. David is is describing a joy and a happiness that is filled to the brim. David's cup is very full in the Lord, right? And Calvin says, therefore, we must devote our whole life to this because our hearts desire that kind of joy, that kind of happiness. That's not going away. If it's not full of God, it's going to be full of something else, right? Right? If it's not God, it's going to be something else. And David says, why would you choose these other gods? Only sorrow comes for them. For in the Lord, you have the best inheritance, the best meal that you can feast on continually. Why would you chase after other gods as you're thinking through the new year? You're thinking through how to have the best life, right, the best uh, goals and how to shape your life to be better and better for 2017, David would call us to say you need the Lord and Him alone to be your all-encompassing satisfaction, that you will not allow your hearts, like John Calvin said, to get excited after depraved desires, right, but you will seek to train your heart to say all of my joy is to be found in Him and Him alone. But we know that that's hard, right? Listen to how David goes in the next verse. This is what he says. And I think he he realizes, like, yeah, I I know this is what's true of our Lord. This is what he says. It it takes all of him. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Right? He knows that uh, through this life God is giving him counsel. He worships. "Thank Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. He says, but also at nighttime my heart is still instructing me. He's referring to like uh, his whole day here. He's like, I need an entire day of instruction, continual instruction at nighttime, in the morning time, even at nighttime is what he says. Before I go to bed, like, my heart still needs to instruct me. He knows that his heart is like this, this idle factory. It's always seeking to fill it. He says, I, I need a whole day of this blessing the Lord and listening for his counsel and blessing the Lord. I need to, to always watch my heart, even at nighttime before I go to sleep. This is what he says in verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. What does the word always encompass of, say, a 24-hour period? All of it, right? This is what David is saying by the word always. I have always set the Lord before me. It means this, that when you wake up, right, this is, how, this is what your day should look like in terms of uh, how your, de- your day's activities are devoted and what they're aimed towards, okay? You're sleeping and waking up, your breakfast, you're getting ready for work, right? Your, your, your morning's commute, your work, your lunch, your afternoon's work, your afternoon's commute, your dinner, your post-dinner activities, and getting ready for sleep your entire day. David says, the Lord needs to always be set before you for the entire day. Now, if I stopped right here, Okay? And I just closed the Bible and said, Alright, go home. Hopefully you'll be like, Something's missing. Because who can just say, Alright, I want to devote my entire day to the Lord? That's that's hard. Okay? I, I've been trying to just have in my own life, morning prayer through the Psalms, lunch, read a psalm and pray before I go to bed, pick up my Bible and pray. And even that alone is like, why is it so hard? Like, uh, it's even hard just to find those habits. I'm like, oh, David, how do you mean always? Guys, we can't do this. If it's up to us, we can't do this. And so this is, the next verse, it, it kind of made the light bulb go off for me. All right, is there is somebody, we, we just described the ideal life. Somebody who has the Lord always before them. Somebody whose joy is full to the brim with their, with their Lord, with their God, Somebody who's not chasing after other gods, but somebody who's just enjoying the Lord, both day, afternoon, evening, night, blessing the Lord, receiving counsel from Him, and just walking what seems to be this kind of blameless manner where his, their cup is just always full with the Lord. And it's like, all right, well, that's, that sounds very idealistic because, geez Louise, that's not me, right? It's like, I would love that to be me, but there's no way. Somebody did live this way, all right? And I think the, the apostles picked up on this psalm and realized... There's something deeper about this psalm that I think David even was aware of, that yes, we can't do this, but there, David, I think, knew that one day a holy one from God would come who actually would have the ideal life, who would have a life and li- would live it as a human being in accordance to what God originally designed before the fall ever came, right? Peter and, 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 um, and Paul, Pick up this psalm and naturally quote the next verses verbatim in Acts 2 and Acts um, 13. In verses 9 and verse 10 it says, Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. In the Lord, when you have that kind of joy, your flesh is dwelling secure. You have no fear of the future because, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to death, or you will not let your Holy One see corruption. These verses were used, quoted verbatim, in reference to Jesus and his resurrection. So You may say, like, well, how, how do they just pull these verses out and say, well, this is Jesus? Because Jesus lived the life that David was talking about. He enjoyed God and had this relationship with God that was so intimate and so deep and he was so connected with his God that he could say insane things about his relationship with the Lord. I want to read this to you. So listen how close Jesus was with his Lord. Right? Listen to John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. He says, All of my actions, right, I do because I saw it in the Father. The Father told me to do them, therefore I do them. Who can say that about our life? Right? Listen to these things. John chapter 8. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. What a crazy statement. Always does the things that are pleasing to his Father. John chapter 12. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as a Father has told me. Again, speaking the very words of God at all times. John 14. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus almost viewed himself as Almost like a, a vessel of the work of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can say, I do nothing in my own accord. It's only the Father working through me of the power of the Spirit. That is my entire life. Right? Listen, Christ was the perfect man. And with that kind of life, he did that because his joy and his love was in the full for his God. His joy and his love A joy and a love that we can never have because of our sin and our sinful nature. He had, and he enjoyed his God so much that everything he did, all of his actions, his life, his words, his everything, was for and from his Father. So Jesus lived this kind of life. He had unfettered access to the Father. His lot was God, and God alone. So they may say, okay, well, that's great. What does that mean for you and I? Well, the New Testament uses this phrase literally more times than I could even quote here, that we are in Christ, okay? God, this, this truth is just uh, so amazing. We are in Christ, and so when God sees Jesus, this is what the, the, the particular role of Christ was, that he was our representative. So the life that he lived, okay, all the things he did in his life, all of his, all of his achievements, his successes and everything, God saw as belonging to us. That is when Christ had that kind of relationship with God, and that kind of joy, that in Christ, God says now, that can be available to you and die. because Christ found that, his perfect righteousness, he never sinned, never faltered in his life, right? The Bible says in Christ we can experience and enjoy his achievements that he did on our behalf Right, the Spirit, uh, Wayne Gurner said it beautifully, he said, the Spirit in a way starts reproducing the joy that Christ experienced in his life from his perfect righteousness by the Spirit. We, we have that begin to be reproduced by the regeneration and power of the Spirit that we are in Christ and we can now experience the joy that he had because it is now given to us in Christ. But something else also happened, that something else was taken from us and given to Christ. Our failures, our sins, the things, the sorrows that we we receive from chasing after other gods are removed off of our shoulders and they were placed on Christ's shoulders. So that he was on the cross, he died for the very things that we find ourselves wrapped up in continually that keep us from living the life that God originally designed us to live, to enjoy him forever and never. All of our failures became Christ's failures. Think about this. All of our sins and the things that we get wrapped up in that keeps us from having the fullness of joy in our Lord were placed on Christ's shoulders. The innocent man, the one who never did any wrong, he suffered what you should have suffered. In order that he says these things about what is available to us in Christ. It says in um, um, uh, it says that, uh, John 15, 11, these things, this is Jesus, I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you that your joy may be full. John 16, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. When we are full of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin asking things, when there are, uh, good things in his name. That's when we find the fullness of joy. Because God is at the center of our heart. John 17, for now I am coming to you, and these things I speak into the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Guys, in Christ, in his death, in Galatians 2.20, it says, when Christ died, you and I died. But when he was raised in newness of life, in Romans um, chapter 6, it says that we also can now walk in newness of life. This somehow we are in union with Christ. Many theologians call it the mystical union because I can kind of stumble in my words in describing how is it that we are in Christ God thinks of us as belonging to Christ. When we believe in, 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 the, in, the, in the salvation and the death of Christ that is for your sins, you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and somehow He brings us in union with our Savior, that He changes your heart, and you begin desiring the things that Christ desired. You begin desiring uh, the things and loving the things that Jesus loved, which is His Father. And you find yourself wanting to be full in the things that Jesus was full of. We can look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you had the ideal life. And in you, I can find the joy that comes from that life. I can't do it on my own. I can't do this on my own. Only in Christ can I find this kind of fulfillment of joy. Only when Christ is my Lord and my Savior and he rules all of my life can I find this joy. Right? And even in our sin, the most beautiful thing is that's the case. But even when we sin, we can still get up. And look to our Father and say, I can still find joy in you because this is forgiven, it's cleansed in Christ. I can boldly come back to our Father and say, this sin will not separate me from you. I can still be joyful even now as I seek repentance in the newness of life. I can still walk in joy. It's not up to you to have this joy ultimately, right? Because in our successes, in our failures, the joy is still offered to us. And that is called grace. That is called grace that we can peel ourselves off the floor when we fail and say, Lord, I still need you and you still accept me. I can still find joy in you in this moment. And when you're, when you're walking in faithfulness, you can say, God, this, this is wonderful. Thank you for giving me the joy that comes from this. As we look at the last two verses, this is what we see in Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That perfectly describes the life of Christ. Um, uh, And the the apostles had glimpses of it. When somebody asked Jesus once, why do your apostles not fast? And he said, well, um, why would they fast when God is with them? Because right now they're the fullness of joy, that they're here, that they're with me. Like like when I'm gone, later they'll seek me and then they'll fast, right? But right now I'm with them. So the apostles had this kind of picture of fullness of joy. It hit me this morning reading this. Who is at the right hand of the Father? In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who's at the right hand of the Father? Colossians 3, if you have been been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Where are pleasures forevermore to be found? In Christ and in Christ alone, for he is at the right hand of the Father. By the indwelling of the Spirit, you can experience the very presence of God to be with you continually, even though it's in a limited manner because we still have sin. And David is writing the psalm from a place of struggle. We're still struggling, but we keep, we're offered a glimpse today of the fullness of joy by the indwelling of the Spirit, by all of what Christ accomplished. We can find the joy that he found in him by the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, at the right hand of the Father, we are offered the fullness of joy. So as we look at the end of our sermon here, as we wrap up, you can have the best year you've ever had the most joyful year you've ever had in 2017 it's not by self-help books or not by doing the right things or not avoiding the wrong things or you know there's helpful things you may you know should do and etc but the fullness of joy will not be found on those things in Christ you can have the best and most joyful life A joyful life and the best life that is not based on circumstances. That is not based on what may befall you in 2017. That is not based on what may come or what may not come in 2017. It's not based on those things. It is based and found in Christ alone. You can enjoy this today in your relationship with the Father because in Christ you now have the same access to the Father. But David does give us pointers and he says that it, it takes a lot of, it does take some work on our end to, to shape our life around Jesus. You must shape your entire life around his truths. He's a filter that you enjoy everything by in this life. Jesus becomes that filter for you that everything is shaped by in this life. So, as we close, 2017 has the potential to be that year. It's fully available to you in Christ. Um, we're about to look at communion which is a memorial of his death and burial and resurrection, I pray that as you're thinking through, you have some time to reflect, thinking through what 2017 may have, thinking through what you may have left in 2016. Maybe you do have really destructive habits in your life. Maybe unbelievable trauma took place in your life in 2016. And maybe it was just a joyful year in 2016. I don't know the Lord knows all the many thousands of things that may be flying in all of our minds here, sitting here thinking about what we left and what we're coming to. There's one thing that Scripture says that you need in 2017. And it is to be, have your cup filled with Jesus and Jesus alone. To not have your joy in life based on your circumstances or your achievements or your failures. To look it's your union with Christ through your faith in him that was a gift to you by God. And to say, that is what I need for 2017 before I do anything else, I must have Jesus. Lord, thank you for these truths. Um, as hard, as, the, as difficult as they are, Lord, we know that, um, the, I think of the parable of, of the man who um, just fell on his knees and just beat his chest and cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, that's where this begins is just realizing we are sinners and we are in desperate need of your mercy. And all these things are offered to us. God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who feels like that man who just needs to get down on his knees and just cry out to God, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I pray that even now as we take communion that we would do that, Lord, as we sing this last song, that we would do that, Jesus. um, Thank you that your gift is free. It was paid for in full by the death and resurrection of Christ. And that we, through him, have an unfettered access to you. We pray this in your good name. Amen.